Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, I am so excited about today's episode and I can't wait to get into it and share it with you. But I just wanted to remind you before we get going today to visit expatmoneyshow.com and sign up for my private newsletter, EMS Pulse. Right now we are sharing the weekly episodes from the podcast, but also a ton of other products and services that we're going to be offering, lots of language programs, lots of tips and tricks for being an expat, whether you're a first-time expat or an expat hopeful. There's just so much going on at expatmoneyshow.com. I really hope that you get a chance to come and visit us, join the newsletter, and then from there, maybe join our Facebook group at expatmoneyforum.com. Lots happening. I really want to share it with you guys, and the best way to stay connected is through these two sites, expatmoneyshow.com and expatmoneyforum.com. Thanks so much. Enjoy today's episode. Cheers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is the Editorial Director for International Man, where he works alongside Doug Casey and Dr. John Hunt, helping individuals around the world to realize their internationalization goals. During his professional career, he has written from more than 85 countries, a dozen of which he called a temporary home. His columns have appeared in well-known libertarian outlets such as Mises.org, Fee.org, LouRockwell.com, and The Daily Reckoning, which he managed for five years with Bill Bonner and Addison Wigan. He speaks regularly at conferences around the world on topics including philosophical anarchism, internationalization, and the decentralization revolution. Please welcome to the show, Joel Bowman. Joel, how are you doing? Ready. It's so great to have you on the show. Why don't you take a couple minutes and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you become an expat and when did you first move overseas and and start getting involved in uh, learning about the economy in such a different and interesting manner? Oh, wow. Okay. So a couple of minutes. I might need a little little longer. I, uh, like yourself, um, I've been sort of moving about for the last uh, couple of decades. Um, My accent... uh, is Australian. It's a little buried from having spent so much time abroad. Um, but I, I first moved from Australia. Uh, I, I took the off-trodden path uh, back to London, thinking at the time naively that I was blazing a new trail, uh, only to find when I got, when I got to England that uh, I'd arrived in a place that was nicknamed Kangaroo Court um, in Earl's Court and found myself more or less swimming in the same stream as every other 
Australian that wanted to get out of Australia at that time and see the broad world. So uh, I shortly after moved to the US um, and uh, early on I, I became involved with a, a publishing company over there out of Baltimore um, known as Agora. Some of your readers may know some of their publications. Uh, and this was early on in kind of my professional career. I started out at the very bottom um, of the kind of editorial heap over there and mostly just spent my time uh, you know, reading research papers, reading uh, economic newsletters, and really just being super energized by the kinds of the kinds of you know out of the box thinking that I was hearing from what to me was you know one of my first experiences with a with a kind of alternate uh, media. You know, you go you go through university and college, and you're given a very very specific uh, and very constrained view of you know, subjects like economics, like politics. And, you know, there are obviously views that are, are self-serving to public institutions like universities. So that's, that's not particularly surprising, but this was, this was really my first introduction to ideas that ran against the grain, uh, particularly with regards to economics. So, so that was kind of, I guess, the beginning of, of, uh, an adventure, uh, for me that, that's taken me to, uh, I don't know, 85, 100 countries and I've, I've lived in a bunch. So that was, that was the inspiration for, for the start, I would say. Well, I think it's really interesting because I've had a lot of different people and we've talked about um, economics on the show, but a lot of times it's the overall general philosophy and understanding, you know, what is Austrian economics and things like this. But when I was doing my research on you, I saw that you've had a lot of like real world economic like experiences. So I'm really excited. I'm hoping that you can talk me through these a little bit today. I know before the interview started, we were chit-chatting about your time in Dubai. I'm in Abu Dhabi, so we would have been next door neighbors if we were here at the same time. Can you talk me through a couple of these types of like real world economic uh, learning experiences that you had? Uh, yeah, sure. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting that we even have the, the kind of separation between the, the theoretical and the practical because um, economists uh, now known, you know, now known as kind of the dismal science or, or uh, a, not quite a soft science, but um, you know, not something certainly like physics or chemistry where there are very, very hard, uh, hard one evidence based peer reviewed answers. We, we have something like economics where it, we now have all models and theories about how things work or, or how governments think they ought to work. But the role of an economist originally in classical times was as a moral philosopher. And it was, you know, these people were sitting around and thinking about what to do, but they were also thinking about it in very practical terms. Um, you know, how economies actually work on the ground. So I was kind of interested in less of the theoretical side and more of the, you know, getting your hands dirty, going to places, uh, you know, where commerce is underway. So shortly after having spent some time in uh, Baltimore working with Agora, I moved to New York, uh, where I worked uh, just off Wall Street with a very dear friend of mine and mentor, uh, Eric Fry. And we published a newsletter called The Root Awakening. Um, and it, it was, again, another kind of baptism by fire for me because I was working in a, in a corner office with a hundred or so other, uh, traders and, uh, you know, options experts and commodities gurus and, you know, all the kind of people that you see on, you know, the, the Wall Street movies and that kind of stuff, which was completely amazing to me. And I was watching trade happen in, in real time. 
um, you know, with real money on the line and, you know, people calling real clients and, and making real decisions that affected people's, um, you know, people's livelihood. And, um, uh, after a couple of years of that, though, it, even that seems to be, you know, one step removed from, uh, reality because, you know, the, it was, this was in the days before high frequency trading necessarily, but it still seems, you know, not quite where the rubber met the road. Um, so after being in New York for about a year, maybe a year and a half, um, we'd been writing a little bit about commodities and gold and things like that. And not just as a, as an investable asset, but as, as a historical form of money. And so I thought, you know, what better place to move uh, to in the world to learn about this metal and its history uh, than to Dubai, aka the city of gold. So I moved over there in 2000, it was 2007, and I got a job moonlighting at a business uh, desk there, um, and I used my uh, spare time, my weekend time, to go over, over the Dierra Creek and visit the gold suits there. And sit with um, the Indian, uh, you know, and Arab gold traders who had their eyes glued to the spot price all day, and who would measure out their ingots and um, and you know roll up their fat wads of dirham of the local government currency, and you know they would be wheeling and dealing all day, and it was it was just a really exciting atmosphere uh, to be in, and it was it was very educational in the way that I don't think I necessarily could have gotten from a textbook or even sitting next to commodity traders behind a computer screen you know there's there's something about owning and trading uh physical metal when you hold it in your hand it's it's a very very different experience than watching you know digital numbers flip across flip across a screen or reading reading text about it in a book um yeah so that i guess that was maybe my first uh real <laughs> real kind of experience in how how commerce and how economics and did you find, like I've been to the the gold souks over here, did you find mostly it was um, gold that was used in jewelry that was going to and from India, or were you guys dealing much in bullion, or what was your observations? Well, I was dealing uh, mostly in bullion, and when I say dealing, you know, this was the very beginning of my uh, kind of professional career, so I wasn't, I wasn't betting cattle stations or anything like that, but I was, you know, migrating uh, some of my some of my savings over into into gold bullion and um, you know and using that as kind of an an investable asset uh, I guess uh, I people will will no doubt fact check this but I think I want to say around the, around the time of 2007 I want to say gold was around the 500 to 600 dollar per ounce range uh, so, something in that order and so it was a very it was a, you know just a very real time lesson for someone who was young who didn't have uh, any money at the time to put their savings in something that not only held, held its value but at that time was was appreciating somewhat against this kind of macroeconomic backdrop uh, that we had of um, you know fiat currencies losing you know in a kind of race to the bottom um, this was only a year before uh, the global financial crisis so we saw you know market turmoil everywhere and it was a real lesson in uh, you know how to how to safeguard one's wealth meager as it was for for me at the time um against you know this kind of global catastrophe it, re it really is 
in a very, very practical sense, um, the, the best form of insurance. So, um, so yeah, there was, obviously I was living there with my, uh, then girlfriend at the time. So I can't say that I wasn't, um, at all in the jewelry section, um, buying trinkets and, uh, and earrings and, and that kind of thing. But, um, I'm happy to report since that, um, then girlfriend is now current wife. So not only did gold pay off, uh, investment wise and savings wise, it, it was also a pretty good, pretty good gift. <laughs> Very nice. Well, it's an interesting point you just made there because you said at the beginning you had meager funds, but the lessons that you learned, it's not really important. If you're, make, if you're learning the lessons with $1,000 or you're learning the lessons with a million dollars, it's not, the, the lesson is not a thousand times more because you're, you're, you're investing or speculating or gambling or everything with a million dollars. If you're learning it, you're learning it, you know, and these are things that you're going to be able to put into practice um, for all your life going forward. So I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And those, you know, those lessons uh, scale. I mean, they, they apply to, as you said, somebody who has very, very little and is just starting out. And then they also apply to somebody who, um, you know, is maybe a little further along in their career and, and they've made a bit of money and, and they want to, you know, ensure that they don't watch it kind of blow away in the the gusts of the next uh, crisis so yeah these are these are lessons that you they're also lessons that you kind of remember all of your life if you if i forget what the saying is but something you know you you recall a certain amount of what you read certain percentage of what you read and a certain percentage of um of what you hear but things that you're doing um you know i work with doug casey on international man and Learn by doing is one of his, one of his favorite sayings. But when you're actually involved in the day to day transaction of something, when you're, um, you know, when you're involved in it in a more practical way, I find those lessons stick, um, for, for a lot longer. So when you moved over to the United States originally and you were working with Agora, you mentioned that you were mostly just reading reports. Were you working as an analyst then, or and then similar type of thing in New York, or like I'm I'm, I'm trying to piece together how these types of things brought you to the real life, living, breathing, seeing, touching with your own hands, um, something like gold, and and I, and I, I have some other things that I want to ask you about afterwards, but I want to get this piece so I so I understand here. Yeah, sure. So it was um, it wasn't anywhere near as uh, exciting or uh, or flashy as great being an analyst. Um, I moved over and took a job uh, answering phones, essentially for like customer service. And I was so terrible at that job, so ill-equipped, both temperamentally and just with regards to my concentration span for um, for answering phones all day. That I, I eventually, after having been there for a couple of months, I decided that. Um, you know, I was reading these rather than answering phones. I was reading um, the economic newsletters and journals that the company was publishing, and so I very quickly decided I wanted to be a part of that world rather than a part of uh, the customer service world necessarily. Not that they're entirely um, separate, but so I, I invited myself on a whim along to an editorial meeting that was held. They used to have editorial meetings once a month where they would have all these, um, you know, huge, um, names in the, in the industry, many of whom I'm sure your readers would probably 
recognize now. They would, you know, fly them in from various parts of the country and around the world. And they would sit down once a month to, you know, it's kind of a cerebral nerve center of the business, this big kind of brain trust that would hash out these, you know, what to me at the time were very, you know, big kind of exotic, sexy uh, ideas. I'm not sure that many people pro- provide those adjectives for economic uh, analysis. For me, it was it was just really exciting. And um, and there was a buzz in the room. There was an energy, you know, there were debates that, that uh, occurred over this kind of big oak um you know boardroom table and it was in a very old building and anyway so that i just found that was really exciting and so i, I invited myself along to one of these meetings and and um and i just said hey i'm i i would like to i would like to be part of this and so it was it was a couple of weeks maybe a month later that uh, i got a call up from one of the uh, from one of the fellows that was sitting around the table and he said, okay, let's see some writing samples. Let's hear some of your ideas. And I'd mentioned to him that I'd, I'd spent a long time, um, you know, both reading the, the various analyses that these gentlemen were, were producing. And I was fairly familiar with their, you know, their various investment philosophies and even down to their individual stock positions and things like that. So I'd, I'd essentially done quite a bit of homework and, and I was willing to move. Uh, from Baltimore at the time where we were to New York within a couple of weeks and sort of apprenticed myself to, um, to this gentleman. So it was, it was part, um, just serendipity, just being in kind of the right place at the right time. And then I guess also part of just putting myself out there and, and, you know, wanting to be, wanting to be part of something that I found interesting and valuable. So that tenacity that really drove you forwards and, uh, and they must have taken notice. Or yeah, or, or or just dumb luck, uh, either way. <laughs> and then when you moved over to Dubai, was that were you still working with Agora, or had you left them by that point? Uh, no, I was I was yeah I was still working with Agora. I was writing uh, the Rude Awakening publication, which was um, the morning edition of another publication called the Daily Reckoning. Um, and so yeah, basically, um, I would produced the rude awakening um nocturnally and then during the daytime i was writing for a business desk uh, called arabian business uh, down in dubai and it it was an interesting kind of mix because during the day i would you know as you know when you're in countries like united arab emirates or or other um let's say smaller um yeah smaller population smaller economies it's not particularly 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 difficult chain and start you know meeting influential people and interviewing them and uh, getting to know the ins and outs of, of the area so on the back of the Arabian business job I got to interview you know a bunch of people who were were involved in you know some economic decision making uh, in the Emirates at the time and um, I remember I remember in 2008 speaking with um, with the head of uh, it was S and P ratings agency for the MENA Middle East North Africa region, and I remember asking him about, um, you know, about the property market there. I remember this is mid two thousand and eight, early two thousand and eight, perhaps, and watching him assure me that everything was fine, that liquidity levels were exactly what they expected, and you know, debt to <laughs> debt ratios were well within their, you know, the, the limits that they'd modeled, and and sitting, you know, across the desk from him and thinking, this is, 
this is absolutely not true. <laughs> this is completely detached from my own experience, you know, living in Dubai and that kind of thing at the time. So, um, so anyway, it was, it was, I had this kind of twin life where, where during the nighttime, I'd, you know, sit down at my computer and tap away my, my uh, opinion pieces for the American publication, um, telling them what I was seeing on the ground and what my real world experiences were. And then, uh, then the following day, I'd, you know, go into work and, um, you know, report business as usual for the local publication. So that was an interesting dichotomy. I would say so. Absolutely. So when you decided to leave Dubai, did you go back to the States? Where did you head? What was kind of the, I'm, I'm trying to get the, the map here, the flight plan of where your, your writing and things have taken you around the world. Okay. So yeah, I left Dubai in 2008. I'd actually written a, uh, a couple of pieces uh, that I sent to, um, to a publisher in, in England. And those pieces were featured in a, a journal called the Fleet Street Journal. And they were not, uh, necessarily in line with what might have been accepted, uh, with the, the local media at, at the time. They were a little uh, critical, uh, of the Dubai governing and, uh, and the way that the, that the, unraveling economic mess that was was being handled and so we i eventually received those pieces um back through a long list of emails that through which they had been forwarded so they made their way back from england through the expat community and then around the local um you know media um in in dubai and i just thought it was a little bit of i didn't necessarily want to be in dubai when we when those pieces, you know, if they got kind of fleshed out. So we left, we moved, uh, I moved with my, uh, my girlfriend then out to the Far East. And we spent the next year and a half in Taipei, uh, in Taiwan. And, you know, this was another, another kind of experience in having to be a little, uh, fleet footed. We were originally thinking of moving to Hong Kong, but as we were approaching, it took, it took us about six months to get there because we, spent some time in India and all through Southeast Asia. But by the time we were arriving on the shores of Hong Kong, expecting, uh, you know, to, to roll up and, and start work, um, there were, you know, were the, the few uh, replies that my, my wife, for example, was, was getting for job applications were, Hey, we just laid off 20,000 people or you know, 20% of our workforce or whatever. This is during the height of the 2008 bubble. So, uh, we had to kind of, uh, you know, re-strategize and rethink our next move. So we went to Taipei um, and just used that as a bit of a launching pad to spend some time up in China, having a look at, at their economy, spending a little time in uh, South Korea and Japan, and just getting a feel for, for the Far East as opposed to having just been in the Middle East. Very, very different mindsets and different mentalities, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. I was having breakfast with a gentleman the other day, and for the mindset side, he was saying, um, living here in the Middle East, the Bedouins, they have this thing where they're so used to being on camel, being on in tents and stuff, when they would come across a date palm, they would go up and they would take every single date off of the tree. And, you know, because they don't know when the next time they would find a date palm. So that type of mentality and that philosophy has really, uh, it's still applicable today. It's still ingrained in who they are. So I understand, like, 
when you talk about Taiwan, about moving there, it's going to be a very, very different mindset than here. Like my wife is from China. Um, her and her family and everyone, everyone we know, they have a mindset where they they don't use debt. Like they they don't have credit cards in that type of regard. If they have cash, they'll buy something. They put money aside. They have gold aside, but they don't use everything like right now, right this second. So I imagine that you probably saw some some quite drastic changes between the two continents. Yeah, that's that's an excellent uh, an excellent example of the the differing mentalities. I mean, I I remember in uh, shortly after we had moved to Taiwan, I was still working with Agora at the time, and um, my publisher Addison Wigan had released a documentary movie called IOUSA, and um, this was it, was, it was, it was, the tagline was, I think a, a big, a big budget movie, something like that. Um, anyway, it was being premiered. Well, the Taiwanese premiere was happening while I was there and I kind of went along with a, a pencil and a pad and a, and a microphone to get the reactions of some of the locals who had come to see this. And basically the movie was about this, you know, the enormous amount of indebtedness that the United States government had dug itself underneath at the time those numbers i mean those numbers now look it's a dream yeah like infant child yeah well i mean it, it, um, we would we would love to have under 10 trillion dollars of, of only 10 trillion dollars of debt now you know the spigots have been opened and, um history moves on but at the time uh, those numbers were shocking you know people were looking at 10 trillion dollars thinking oh my goodness this is you know an unheard of um sea of you know amount of debt and so the movie went and spoke about not just governmental debt, but how that affected, you know, individual credit card debt, retail debt, all the way up and down the value chain. And we came out of the movie and, you know, I was interviewing some of the, my fellow moviegoers and the looks on their faces, it was like we had just been to see some kind of horror movie. You know, people were, were aghast at the fact that individuals would not only not save some very meaningful portion of their of their income, but that they would over leverage, that they would actually be spending more than they earned, which they to the Taiwanese mentality, this was you know, you you could almost watch their heads kind of, you know, explode uh, on top of their shoulders. And and we had some I I specifically remember one two young uh, women that were there that I was speaking to and asking you know for their take on the movie and one of the one of these young women was almost in tears and and she'd been so shaken by uh by essentially an economics documentary and she was um she was kind of shaking a little bit and and so nervous when she confided to me that she only saved 40 percent of her income and she was she was going to go home and you know maybe ratchet that up a little bit because you know she wanted to guard herself against the kind of ills that were no doubt uh in store for for the united states so yeah that was a that was a huge shift in mentality from what we had seen from the middle east um, um you know just some short months before it's just insane it's crazy but yes absolutely 10 trillion can we can we go back there please can can we have that again 10 trillion seems like a dream and, and, and it's now exponentially running away. So, you know, you and I sit down and have a, a conversation in another 10 years. I, it's, I, I don't know how high it can go, but, um, it seems to be 
ramping up exponentially, which is probably not a good not a good sign. So this interview is kind of turning into this is your life, Joel Bowman, but I am interested, where did you go next after Taiwan? Oh, <laughs> okay. So after Taiwan, uh, I moved to Argentina. Um, I, I'm a little bit of a, of a bubble economics connoisseur. So I like to see, I like to see catastrophe up close, uh, and up close and personal, right? Right there in the thick of it, eh? Up close and personal. Yeah, so we, I moved down to Argentina, uh, 2010, uh, something like that. And, and you know, this is, again, this was another, this is another, um, environment in which real time lessons in, in economics were on offer almost daily. Um, so shortly after I moved down there, the, uh, local, uh, peso, market started detaching from the black market down there or they call the blue market and so there were there were completely disparate rates between what you could get for say you went down there as a u.s tourist and you wanted to exchange some u.s dollars uh at a local bank for example you would get a particular rate and this was let's call it say five pesos to one but if you went to the black market or cuevas caves that would, would call them, then you could get a meaningful difference. And the spread would be, you know, sometimes 20, 30, 40, 50%, uh, depending on where you went. So, uh, it, it was another, it was, it, and the reason for this was because there were capital controls placed by the Argentine government on the population with regards to how they were allowed to move their, or how they were not allowed to move their money around. Um, you know, they were, they were not allowed to invest in gold without providing huge amounts of personal information and all this kind of stuff. So the Argentine government had basically trapped the Argentine population into a, uh, a fiat currency, the Argentine peso that they were rapidly depreciating. And there was, you know, they'd really barred all the exits. Uh, and so there was a premium on foreign currencies like the dollar, like the euro that uh, Argentines would pay in order to escape their own uh, peso denominated disaster, looming disaster. And, you know, so it was, you know, you could read about uh, Gresham's law in economics books. Uh, the, the, the So I want to remind you to go to expatmoneyshow.com to pick up your free special report called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. We have had some really good feedback with this. It's actually a project I've been working on for probably about four years now and been offering it to my subscribers. And I am constantly updating it with the best and the newest resources for people wanting to go abroad. It is really amazing. I'm really happy with the work that we've done. And it's really different than a lot of the other projects out there or special reports or eBooks or anything like that. And this is one of the main differences. It is highly curated, it is highly condensed. It is not 400, 500 pages long and talking about every single thing out there and every single little detail. Actually, that doesn't serve anyone. Your best bet is always to go with the really, really condensed information so that you can connect the dots, so you can understand what's happening and how things fit together. And that's exactly what this special report does. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can find it completely for free 100% free at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, 
Enjoy, and let's jump back into the interview. Is that uh, bad money changes out good money? Exactly. exactly. And, and you could look at that and you could process it theoretically and say, oh, okay, so this is how that would work in a closed economic system. But until you see people, you know, paying a, a 50% premium to get out of uh, bad money so that they can save in good money, which is essentially what was happening. People would save in gold if they could get their hands on it. They would save in US dollars because it was, it was so much preferable to the, you know, fiat script that the Argentine government was, was printing at, uh, at a pace. Um, you know, until you see that in, in very real time, it's not immediately intuitive why that law would hold, but it was, yeah, again, it was, it was very interesting to see and, you know, to see that spread, uh, widen as those spreads tend to do. And did you put in, did you have any business opportunities where you were working on the arbitrage there or you were just watching it happen? Well, uh, um, I was, I was watching it happen, but I was, this was also the beginning of, um, you know, of other things like cryptocurrency. Well, at least the beginning of my awareness of them. So I was overlaying my experience with, uh, private monies, uh, public monies. You know, it was, it was, it was very, complicated but very interesting at the same time um we did have uh, you know quite a few friends uh down there who we encouraged to open foreign um bank accounts uh, particularly in uruguay and so you know people that we knew were able to save um in non-argentine peso denominated accounts and in uruguay you can open dollar accounts and things like that so that was a real uh a real um, you know, port in a storm for a lot of people who were undergoing, you know, fairly rampant, uh, inflation and, you know, just debasement of the value of their currency. Um, and, uh, and now I know, uh, for example, this is, you know, this is quite some years on, but uh, when we were there, when we first moved there in 2010, I guess the peso to dollar exchange rate, I still remember was about a pack of cigarettes. So it was about four, Argentine pesos to one US dollar. And I haven't checked in the data recently, but it's, it's now something like 40 to one. So yeah, it's gone it's kind of parabolic since then. So how long were you in Argentina for? <laughs> uh, I was in Argentina for five or six years. Uh, we spent, we would spend half a year in Argentina and then half a year, uh, with carry on only luggage. Uh, traveling around the world, trying to see some other things and visit some other places. So was that because you were doing the perpetual traveler type of lifestyle and you were a non-resident in Argentina or is that just purely for the fun of it? A little bit of both, I'd say. Uh, it becomes an addiction after a while, I think. Maybe a, a kind of healthy addiction. Um, but yeah, and there's always a, you know, you go somewhere and then you think, well, I'm only, you know, it's a short flight away from somewhere else and maybe I can just keep going. So, you know, eventually you end up just, uh, just, you know, perpetually uh, traveling. But we were not residents in Argentina. And, and in fact, I think it's, you know, to the extent that you can keep uh, residency in one uh, jurisdiction to a minimum or to, a, to an extent that you can spend as few months in that particular place as possible then that's probably to to your advantage um you know to keep on the move i mean not not just for not just to keep continually resetting your 
personal expectations uh, and you know to avail yourself to the kinds of surprises uh, that new cultures and economies and languages and flavors and all that kind of stuff avail to you but but you know also just as a from a practical standpoint I, we've only probably got another well I probably only have another 50 or 60 years on the planet and there's a lot of places to get to yeah I've been at this for 20 years traveling around the world and you know I've been to more than 100 countries and I still feel like there's just so much to see and do like how am I ever going to have enough time to do it all yeah I guess the I completely agree and I, I guess the the paradox is this is kind of like a Zeno's paradox the more you the more you see the less you know you know when you when you have only been to a few places then you there's not necessarily that many questions that you might have on your mind but it's the the more places that you go to you you realize uh that, that we only have this tiny little amount of knowledge and that there's so much more out there and you, I don't think people necessarily appreciate that until they start traveling i think that's why when people start traveling they find it so very difficult to stop because their appetite for uh, acquiring knowledge becomes uh, insatiable. I think there's some famous quote that basically says that travel is the enemy of bigotry and closed-mindedness. And I think that's really true. You know, once you start traveling around the world and seeing different cultures and different perspectives and the way that people live their lives, um, you really question the way that you were brought up and the, the what you were told by the government and told by the schooling and and all these different types of things there's really a thousand different ways that things can be done and you know i'm canadian you're australian we're probably both taught as a young age that we're the best and you know our country is the best and our government is the best and everything we do is the best and when you start traveling you realize like it doesn't work like that at all you know there's so many different cultures so many different experiences so many different things to to understand that that you can't i don't know like it, it's an interesting thought process um how we deal with these types of things yes i, I agree I, th I think it would be very very difficult to, to maintain a robust prejudice against religion xyz or um a, system of government XYZ or economy XYZ having come from one and then gone to visit, um, gone to visit some others. It's just no, and it, it's intuitive when people flip it around in their head because people know, uh, when they go to, you know, the banks of the Ganges, for example, and they see, uh, cholera and typhoid and diphtheria victims being thrown whole body into the water. 20 feet away from where some child is brushing their teeth, they, they immediately know that, hmm, this, it looks like something wrong with this picture. Um, but rarely do they flip the switch and imagine somebody from another country or another culture coming to the chance place that they happen to have been born themselves and looking through the outside perspective of that person's um, position and saying, hey, but Maybe, you know, you in Canada or me in Australia, if maybe somebody came over and had a look at the way that we've been taught to do things our whole life. Perhaps it might seem, seem absurd. And so all these things that we, that we take for granted as being necessarily the, the best answer to all questions, um, until we, until we really, uh, you know, until we really examine that very closely, then, uh, we, we just take things for granted and that's no way to live. 
Absolutely. So these days you're where? In Mexico, correct? I'm in Mexico for uh, two more weeks. And then I'm in Mexico City for two more weeks. And then I'm moving to uh, Medellin in Colombia. Oh, one of my favorite places in the whole world. Yeah, we have a we have a rule in my family that we're not allowed. It's it's a very arbitrary rule that we impose on ourselves, of course. But um, we the rule is that we're we're not allowed to move to any city that we've already visited. You've never been to Medellin, and you're moving there now. Yes, I've never been anywhere that I moved to. So we've been to Colombia a few times. Oh my goodness, that's so cool. We've been to Bogota and Cartagena, um, Manizales, some other places around around the country. So we know enough to know that, that we like it. We have a lot of, of very good Colombian uh, friends, friends from Colombia. Um, so we know that much. But uh, yeah, it it you know it just makes it all that little bit more exciting to step into the into the unknown. So that, that's going to be a, a, another adventure. Well, I've lived in seven different countries and probably twenty cities, but I'd say ninety percent of them. I went and checked it out first. I didn't. Uh, I didn't just move the whole family there. So that that's a pretty cool way of doing it. it. Must be pretty interesting. And then, and then I suppose with you and your wife and your child and everything, you can experience everything together for the very first time. It's not like, hey, come and look at this restaurant I saw. It's like you guys go and do it together for the first time. Yeah, there's there's definitely an element of that. I mean, you know, a certain amount of due diligence obviously is is intelligent I, I don't think i would move the the three of us to uh, you know a, a, a complete unknown um but like i said yeah it's, it's having a having some uh, some um you know some factor of of uh, variable in there uh, kind of keeps it interesting but you you make a very good point the, the three of us you know my, my daughter's three and a half um my wife runs her own business i have um, you know, my own work going on. So we experience different places that we go to, obviously, very, very differently. And so it's interesting to um, compare and contrast those different experiences with one another. Very interesting. Well, it's been really interesting to see, you know, the world, like the real life economic examples and um, things that you've learned during your travels, because this is not something I've talked to a lot of my guests about we'll we'll talk about the fun things of travel which we've also done but um before we got talking today you were talking about how you can internationalize your life or how others can internationalize their life kind of on the cheap you know on the shoestring so through this world travels and and living in so many different places what are some of those other uh ways that you've found to do this right well um you know straight off the bat i mean the cost of living uh, is, you know, very disparate between different places in in the world. So it's a, there's a very good chance that um, that wherever your listeners have grown up, they're paying a lot more for their cup of coffee or their, um, you know, magazine or certainly things like their education or their health insurance or their um, their rental or accommodation uh, situation. There's a good chance that they're paying a lot more for those things than they might if they um, if they chose to live in you know one of the 150 other odd uh, jurisdictions around the world. So I often hear as an excuse for people who say that they would like to travel, that they would like to internationalize themselves at the very top of of the 
typically a long list of excuses is, well, it's too expensive for me. I'm not going to be able to, to afford that. Uh, not taking into account that simply by moving to a, to, you know, one of those 150 odd other jurisdictions, they're all, they'll already be enjoying a massive uh, cost of living advantage. Um, you know, even things like, you know, I have people who say that friends that would say they'd love to live abroad, but I can't afford it. And then they, you know, they have car insurance and they have credit card interest repayments to make and, you know, all these other, you know, probably largely unnecessary overheads. Um, when you think about the kind of medical insurance that you can get here in uh, Mexico, for example, um, you know, the advantages of taking an Uber around um, Taipei rather than, you know, garaging a car and uh, paying auto insurance on that. Um, you know, the idea of, of moving abroad and getting those kind of real world economics lessons that we were discussing earlier and not going down the path of spending four years and one or $200,000 or more um, on a miseducation at some you know, government institution. There, there are many ways that it, it, just by starting with a different frame of reference, you can immediately get out of the gate uh, at drastically less uh, expense than than just staying put. People don't realize that the enormous cost of of not going somewhere. Well, my favorite one is when they use that same exu um, same excuse of not having the money, but they're in a job that they hate. So what do they do on the weekends? They go in, drink their faces off, and spend two hundred dollars at the bar uh, to you know repress and forget. And you know instead of living their dreams. And going out there and experiencing the world, they they practice escapism in their normal life. And it's like, well, if you put your money aside and, you know, you would have the resources to move and the cost of living is so much less anyways, you might be better off. Like, I don't know. It, it's funny sometimes the way that people's minds work. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And it's, and it's also interesting that the things that you think you value uh, may not necessarily hold true when uh, exposed to the light of another experience. So, for, for example, if you are, you know, growing up in your hometown, there's there's typically a pressure of, you know, what's commonly called keeping up with the Joneses. So the idea of, you know, my friend down the street, he got a new car, so I have to get a new car. And this person, they put an extension on their house, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and. It's a, it's a very, very, uh, you know, it's, it's a very slippery slope. It's only, I think, once, um, you know, once you extract yourself from that kind of situation, that societal pressure. If you're living, you know, if you're a Canadian, uh, let's say, or Australian, and, and you're finding yourself living in, uh, in Ghana, there's going to be little pressure on you to, you know, be keeping up with, with. Yeah, I, I don't know a Ghanaese name. What's a Ghanaese name? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not, you've, got, you've got me there. But you're not going to spend your time, um, you know, trying to one-up the, the guy next to you. You're going to spend your time trying to learn about his culture. You're going to spend time trying to work out how you can, uh, you know, uh, make business together or how you can, um, you know, how you can explore different opportunities there. It's, it's, I think, you know, you, you quickly realize when you go back to uh, your place of birth that, Oftentimes, those really ostentatious displays of wealth are, are really just 
they're tawdry. They're they're almost embarrassing. It's it's not you know showing off that you've got a new car that you've you know you've you've heavily financed or that you've gone deeper in debt to show everybody on the street that you know you've got a, a shiny new uh, you know vacuum cleaner or something. It, it, those, those things don't really hold very much value um, in the long run. I don't think. No, they don't at all. And I'm I would be amazed that people still I don't know lack of a better word, fall for these types of things because everybody understands how easy it is to get credit these days. And when you see someone with an expensive car, especially in North America and a big house and, you know, all this new, new stuff, I don't think, wow, they're so rich. I think, oh, wow, they've got so much debt. Like that, like that would, that would strangle me. I wouldn't sleep at night if I had that type of debt. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it it can be crippling, of course, and and you know that's a difficult um, that's a difficult situation for for people to get out from underneath if they're suffering this um, you know this uh, shouldering this enormous debt load. Um, you know, for for people who are in that situation, I mean, the, there there are definitely things you could. I mean, you could um, let let's say you lived in uh, in North America and. You know, you had a couple hundred thousand dollars debt on your house. Uh, I, I think the something you could immediately do, you know, downsize, get rid of that shiny vacuum cleaner that you don't really need. Start, you know, learn how to use a broom. Um, maybe, maybe look at uh, renting a room of your of your place out to try and you know bring in some income on what is essentially a, a this huge uh, burden that you've got over your head. And you know, you could. Or you could rent your entire place out on Airbnb or something and go live south of the border for a little while for an absolute fraction of the price and probably live a much better, healthier, active lifestyle than you would in, you know, spending two hours commuting to that job that you hate that you mentioned before and um, drinking your face off every weekend. That's probably not the best solution. Well, you know, on this show, I often have lawyers on and we talk about trusts. We talk to, you know, gold vault operators and a lot of these people have these these solutions and a lot of them are really interesting and they're fascinating and and they make sense for certain people but you know this is the expat money show if if you're still at home in your home country and you're at a job that you don't like you know the first thing to internationalize your life is to leave like get out there and start experiencing the world you know don't don't worry about all these other things the second passports the residence just Get out and start experiencing life. Like this perspective we were chatting about before, it is so fundamental. And then everything else will fall into place afterwards, you know? But you got to get moving. You got to go out there and see the world to actually figure out what it is that you like and what you need and what you enjoy. Yeah. I mean, think of it like, um, you know, choosing, going to, a, going to a fancy restaurant and the waiter coming over and asking you what you want for dinner, but not letting you have a look at the menu. I mean, just just the fact that so, that people are doing what it is they're doing by default, without having seen all of the options available, that the statistical probability that an individual has chosen the best possible life just because it was the life that was immediately presented to them, or in in most cases prescribed for them, the statistical probability of that being your most advantageous application of time is next to zero. So 
at, at the very least open the menu at the very least go somewhere else and you know challenge your preconceived notions and and you know try and discover if if you weren't just doing what you were doing because that was the default setting i don't think anybody aspires to live a default life but we see it every day which is it's mind-boggling but Okay, so step number one for most people, I think we can agree, is get out there and see the world, start experiencing things. What are some other things that are not going to cost people hundreds of thousands of dollars, things that people can put into place today, which will help internationalize their life and protect their, protect their assets, protect their freedom from whomever, from the government, from the state, from all these types of things that we often talk about on the show? Right. Well, I, I guess the first thing to do is um, to decide what value you can bring to the kind of market that you're moving to. So determining what advantage you have over, you know, the 120 million other uh, people that live in, in a particular country that you want to go to and how you can bring uh, an advantage of knowledge or skills uh, to the kind of market that you're entering, how you can bring a new perspective, um, you know, to wherever it is that, that you're moving. And, you know, that might involve, um, you know, building an online business. It might involve leverage, leveraging some, uh, local contacts or, um, you know, really just differentiating yourself from the crowd. I mean, it's very, very difficult to be, it's very, very difficult to stand out if, you are, you know, the same as everybody else in your particular hometown, your home country, uh, your place of birth. Uh, but if you move abroad, it's, it quickly becomes apparent things that you can offer of value, uh, to that marketplace. So, so I guess identifying that, uh, first of all, and you won't, of course, know that until you, until you move to those uh, particular places, but go somewhere that is intriguing to you and right away try and think of, ways that you could potentially add value to the market that is not common um, with with your community. And so then you'll you'll quickly discover that you'll be able to not only will you will you stand out and will you be able to add value to your own life, but you'll be, you know, doing something that might not necessarily have been undertaken uh, in your local community. So once you've worked that out, then you know, the steps will follow on. Okay. How do I, how do I potentially derive income from this? Remember, you'll likely be living in a, in a, in a place with much lower cost of living than your hometown, at least uh, when you start out. So your income doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, high six figures or whatever you, you might have needed to keep up with the Joneses. Um, you know, it might only need to be enough so that you can, you can rent a, a comfortable place. Um, you know, with close proximity to maybe a shared workplace or something like that, and, and you can get your business underway pretty quickly. Well, and I think for a lot of Western nations, when you leave the West and you start traveling, you know, you head over to Asia, you head over to Africa, places like this, maybe you were, it was quite a competitive workplace where you came from, but your special set of skills and experiences, and I hate to say, but education might be massively beneficial to this new nation. And often they will pay very heavily and, and very handsomely to have you there and to, to share this knowledge and work in a certain industry. So I think it's important to look at things like that as well, because 
there's a lot of governments who have short lists of skilled workers or doctors or lawyers and, and things like this where you can walk in and get residency very, very easily. And they're, they're so thankful. They're so thrilled to have you there and to contribute to the economy. Um, I think it's a very viable option that people need to look at. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I just wanted to underscore quickly what you said about um, different jurisdictions welcoming people. Um, you know, it, your own accidental jurisdiction of birth, uh, the presiding government sees you as a, as a worker bee. It sees you as a, as a tax slave. There's no, you know, there's no two ways about that. It, you are there for, you know, to contribute to the health of the state. Um, and you're, you're treated accordingly. But when you move to or spend considerable time in places that, um, you know, where you're treated like a guest, um, you know, rather than a host for a parasite to feast on, that's, that's liberating. It's liberating, um, emotionally, intellectually to not, you know, to not stay in the pen in which you were, in which you happen to have been born is, uh, it's a very different perspective through which to view life. And it's a perspective that lends itself to uh, the creative process and to, you know, leaps in imagination that, that you might not have experienced um, otherwise. Well, and I think back, and, and I can't say so much for Australia, but definitely in North America, the mentality is these are immigrants and they're coming over here to steal our jobs. And... Um, you know, go on welfare and, and they're all bums and there's such a, a negative connotation to moving abroad. But you know what? Like other countries, they don't have this stigma. Like you 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 tell them you're from where wherever your home country is from and, and you're coming over here to work. They're thrilled to have you there. You're you're not looked down upon, you know? They're they they never were brought up with this type of negative uh, stigma about having foreigners in their country. It's a very different mentality of the people there. Yeah, that's that's absolutely absolutely correct. You know, it was it was very interesting moving to Mexico, uh, where I've been for the last year and a half. I moved here shortly after the uh, U.S. presidential excuse me U.S. presidential election, and as you know, irregardless of of what side of the fence uh, people fall on politically, there was there was certainly just a lot of heated discussion around the the subject of immigration and you know you kind of got the feeling that at least some meaningful per, uh, percentage of the u.s electorate had reservations at the very least all the way through the spectrum toward sort of outright uh, nativism and jingoism and there were all kinds of um you know mud racking um, assaults and insults and whatnot being thrown across the aisle but it was very interesting to, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time in the U.S., but it was very interesting coming, uh, you know, moving south of the border and finding really, really, really warm, hospitable, welcoming environment to, you know, for all intents and purposes, locals may well think that I'm, I'm an American citizen, American expat. Um, but, you know, we would have people at restaurants and in bank lines and at the barber shop asking, Oh, so where are you from? Really? You've decided to move to Mexico City. Wow. Thank you so much. How do you like our city? Um, you know, w within 20 minutes, it was not uncommon to have people in invite us, you know, to a, to a 
a restaurant or over their house for a home cooked meal or you know, any number of other uh, interesting connections that you get to make to people. So there was, it was a real juxtaposition, um, you know, to, to, to just compare the two, um, you know, kind of cultural fronts towards uh, immigration, especially during such a divisive uh, time. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Joel, thank you so much for your time today, for being a guest on the show. If my listeners want to find out more about you, if they want to learn more about what you do, where can we send them? Well, they can go to internationalmen.com. I'm working on that project with uh, Doug Casey, who I know you've had on the the, uh, program before, and Dr. John Hunt, who is his co-author in the High Ground novel series. So the three of us are over there at internationalman.com and we're writing about all the kinds of things we've been talking about today. And I've read many, many, many of your articles over there and they are just phenomenal. So I highly encourage my listeners to go check out you guys' work because there's lots of great stuff there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, Joel? Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Mikel here. So I have an ask for you today. If you're enjoying this podcast, what I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to leave us a five-star review, even better. If not, tell us why. We are really doing our best to make this show the absolute best it can be to help as many people to go offshore and inspire entrepreneurs and investors and business owners to move their businesses abroad. There's so much to be had in this industry. I love doing this work and I love doing this podcast, but we want to get the message out there to more people. And the best way to do that is with reviews. So if you have ever gotten one good tip, one good thing from this show, if you enjoy listening to us every single Wednesday or whenever you listen during the week, then please take 30 seconds out of your day, go out there, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It actually makes a big difference for the show, for the visibility, and really helps get the word out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region.
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.